This is Cardinal Francis George. I invite you to join me for the next few minutes to reflect with Father Robert Barron on the Word of God, which is the Word on Fire. Word on Fire Catholic Ministries is a nonprofit ministry at the forefront of Catholic evangelization, using new media to spread the faith on every continent. Father Barron challenges us to open our hearts to the Word on Fire, which is God's Word of love for each of us. If our hearts are open, the Lord can change and transform us so that we might speak with love about the one who is love. The global benefactors of Word on Fire, with the support of the Archdiocese of Chicago, now present Word on Fire. Peace be with you. Friends, every third summer we have the privilege of reading at Mass from the sixth chapter of the Gospel of John. Can I recommend to you, at some point today or this week, uh, take out your Bibles and read through the sixth chapter of John. You can do it easily in one sitting. Maybe read it with your, um, with your family. It's the greatest Eucharistic theology in the New Testament. It's kind of curious because in John's Gospel, there's no institution narrative. I'm using the technical term there. It just means the account of what Jesus said over the bread and cup at the Last Supper. So you find that in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. You find it even in 1 Corinthians by St. Paul. But in John's account of the Last Supper, you don't find that. Well, it doesn't mean for a second there's no Eucharistic theology in John, just the contrary, because the sixth chapter is Jesus' great discourse at the Capernaum synagogue. After the multiplication of loaves and fishes, he goes there and the people follow him. And he gives a speech that more or less comments on the deeper meaning of this uh, multiplication of the loaves and fishes. And it constitutes, as I say, the most penetrating, profound commentary on the Eucharist. So take, a, take the opportunity with your family, maybe, to read through uh, John 6. Well, today's gospel, in many ways, is the climax of this great uh, discourse. The first thing I want you to see is something Christological. I mean, this discourse says a lot to us about Jesus. Now, here's what I mean. He says, I am the living bread come down from heaven. Whoever eats this bread will live forever. The bread I will give is my flesh for the life of the world. Now, the first thing we should notice is, Jesus is a very strange and unique figure. The Buddha, for example, would never say, that you should eat my body and drink my blood. Or he wouldn't say that you should concentrate on me personally. He'd say, there's a way I found, this eightfold path, which will allow you to escape from suffering. The Buddha himself benefited from it, and he wants you to know about it. Muhammad would never say, feast on my body and blood. I mean, it's, that would be blasphemous and extreme for a Muslim. He would say, there's a revelation given to me by Allah, and I want you to know it. And I'll benefit from it as much as you will. Think of um, you know Confucius, who discovers an ethical path, and he wants you to benefit from it. But see, the difference is, and you find this also in John's Gospel, Jesus doesn't say, I found a way. He says, I am the way. He doesn't say, there's a truth that, that I've um, discovered, and I think you'll benefit from it. He says, I am the truth. He doesn't say, well, here's a, a manner of life I think you'll benefit from. He says, I am the life. See, all that signals the real distinctiveness of Jesus. It is about him. 
in a way that it's not about the other great founders. And I don't mean that in any way to be critical of them. It's just to make the, uh, the distinction between them and Jesus. And that's why here he says, to feed on him. You know, it's precisely why St. Paul refers to the collectivity of Christians as the body of Jesus, the mystical body of Christ. You, you never, you know, for a second, if you're a Buddhist, refer to the collectivity of Buddhists as the mystical body of the Buddha. I mean, it'd just be ridiculous to say that. Or for a, a Muslim to say, well, we're the mystical body of Muhammad. You'd never think of saying that. It would be blasphemous to say that. But see, since Jesus is himself the way, the truth, and the life, he's the one upon whom we feed and in whom, therefore, we find a sort of organic, mystical communion with one another. That's why the church is part of the mystical doctrine. You know, it's not just a, uh, a sociological reality. Oh, yeah, a bunch of like-minded people come together and organize themselves. The church is much, much more than that because of who Jesus is. So the first point here in John 6 is to see how the distinctiveness of Jesus emerges with enormous clarity in this discourse. But now, in the wake of what I just uh, quoted here, right? I am the living bread. Whoever eats this bread will live forever. The bread I will give is my flesh for the life of the world. Here's the second thing that I want you to see. Right after that, the Jews, it says, quarreled among themselves, saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? Well, that's a good question, if you're a Jew of that time and place. Because for um, biblical Jews, the eating of flesh with blood in it was strictly verboten, I mean, strictly forbidden. Go back now, it's all the way from Genesis through uh, Deuteronomy, all through the Torah. You'll find it too in the prophets. The eating of flesh with blood was forbidden. Now why? Because blood was the principle of life. It belonged to God. And therefore no one could t take upon himself the prerogative of eating flesh with blood. It's animal flesh, of course, we're talking about. Still true, you know, in kosher settings today. So, Here's a man, here's a, a fellow Jew, saying, unless you eat my flesh, there has no life in you. It's hard to imagine something that was more um, disgusting, but secondly, and, and, and more importantly, more theologically objectionable than that. It's the gross realism of the language that the people object to, and that's why they quarreled among themselves, saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? See, that's the point. Now, at this juncture, given every opportunity to soften his language, so let's say you're talking to a crowd, you're trying to convince them, and they have this massive objection to what you're saying. Well, you'd try all you can, wouldn't you, to mollify them. You'd do everything you can to make it easier to take in. But listen now what the Lord says. Amen, amen, I say to you. That's his shorthand for, hey, this is really true now what I'm going to say to you. Unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you do not have life within you. Now, I've mentioned this before to you, but I think it bears repeating because the Greek is so instructive. He doesn't use the word phagein here. It's the usual Greek word for to eat, the way human beings would eat around a table. The word used here in the Greek is trogain. 
which designates the way animals eat. It means like gnawing. It means like, like, like munching on something the way an animal would. You see what he's doing? When they object to the physical realism of it, he turns up the heat. He doesn't soften the language. He makes it more direct and, and in your face. Furthermore, listen, for my flesh, and he's not saying my spirit or my mind or something abstract, my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. See, so he's not, he's not trading in vague symbolism here. That's easy enough. I mean, who would quarrel about that? If you said, oh, this, this bread here is a symbol of my body. Well, okay, great. Anyone can cook up a symbol. Why would you quarrel about that? See, what's interesting to me, and what's, what's um, indicative of the historical density of this account, is that they were quarreling among themselves because the language he was using. Now, I'm dealing with the Greek. We hear it in English. I'm talking about the Greek of the New Testament. They would have heard this, of course, in their own Aramaic. But it, it's a sign that this language was extremely objectionable to them. But Jesus insists on the reality of this um, language. Now, how do we begin to explain this? How do we begin to make sense of this? Because this is the ground for the Catholic sense of the real presence of Jesus in the Eucharist, isn't it? When we say in the Eucharist, we're not just dealing with a symbol, a sign, a literary device. We say that the bread and wine at the Eucharist change at the level of substance into the body and blood of Christ so that Jesus is really, truly, and substantially present in the Eucharist, right? That's the Catholic doctrine. Grounded here, grounded in this John chapter 6. How do you explain it? Well, I think the best way is through recourse to the creative power of the divine word. I've used examples before with you, I think, but, you know, human words can change reality. The, the cop who says to you, you're under arrest. Well, that changes reality. You are, in fact, under arrest. His speaking doesn't just describe something. So I could say, hey, I'm in a room now with uh, four chairs in it, and, and I'm describing reality. But see, certain words can change reality, can't they? Even our puny words. Or a, an umpire calling someone out at a baseball game. Well, that changes the course of the game. It doesn't just describe something, it affects something. Okay, okay, that's our little words. But now, God's Word. God's Holy Word. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. And the Word was God. And through that Word, all things came to be. God speaks reality into existence. Let there be light, and there was light. God's word is to the nth degree performative and not just descriptive. As the rain and snow come down from heaven and do not return without watering the earth, so my word goes forth from me and does not return without accomplishing its purpose. That's the prophet Isaiah. So that's the idea. The divine word is creative and not just descriptive. So, so. Who's this Jesus speaking here? Who is this Jesus who said over the bread, this is my body, and over the cup of Passover wine, this is my blood? Who is that? That's the relevant question. 
ordinary human being, he's trading in symbolic talk. Ho-hum. We can all do that. Who would quarrel about that? Nobody would quarrel about it. It's commonsensical. But he's not just an ordinary human being, but rather he is the Word made flesh. He is God from God, light from light, true God from true God, which is why what he says is. What he says becomes. And so this is my body. Well, I mean it's now literally, by God, that's his body. This is my blood. Well, by God, that's his blood. Because what he says is. See, friends, that's the ground for the Catholic doctrine of the real presence of Jesus in the Eucharist. Now, let me, as I close, bring these two points together. Who is Jesus Christ? Not one figure among many. Not not simply another religious founder. But he is God from God. Which is why what he says is. Bring those two points together and you get, I think, the import of this climactic section of the sixth chapter of John. And let it be your prayerful meditation this week. And may God richly bless you. I hope you were moved today by the word on fire. I pray that together we might become a people on fire with love for God and neighbor here in Chicago and wherever these words are heard. Until we join Father Barron again next week, I'm Cardinal Francis George, and I pray that God will bless you and those you love. Four years in the making, and it's finally here. Our new Catholicism documentary series, book, and study program are now available to order online at catholicismseries.com. Will you help me introduce this epic film series to your parish, school, family, and friends? Catholicism is an unprecedented adventure around the world and deep into the faith. Learn more at catholicismseries.com or call 1-866-928-1237. That's 1-866-928-1237.